What is up, listeners? Welcome back to another episode of the world's number one e-commerce podcast, Modern Commerce. Still going with that, huh? <laughs> I think you just say it, you know? You keep saying it till it happens. Fake it till you make it. It's affirmations. All right. right. You know, I don't know. How many e-commerce podcasts are there? You'd really? be surprised. <laughs> I said There's may- a few. maybe you guys are number one. Yeah, I don't know. You they, never know. We are. We definitely are. And my my mom said we are at least so. As usual, I'm uh, one of your hosts, Roger Emmer. I'm here joined today by my co-hosts and partners at Remy Labs, Brent Cho. What's up? Hey, hey. Doug Barnett. Hello, you hello. You guys, do, have you been eating plums lately? I feel like this is a joke I'm going to walk into. <laughs> yeah, he's talking about the background. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, went Willy Wonka. If style. you got, if the listeners haven't um, aren't checking us out on video, we're on Spotify and YouTube. You can see the video. We just upgraded the uh, vibes here in the in the studio. What do you guys think? Pretty cool. Very purple. Very purple. We can change it to whatever color we want. Just it's on nice a whim. for someone <laughs> with really. You know, olive skin, like mm-hmm. myself, brings out the best. You know why I wanted the purple? <laughs> why? Sacramento Kings. Oh, okay. do we want to? Do we want to? <laughs> I think we should hop. Yeah, let's pause. Let's pause on that for a minute. But okay, <laughs> I think it's because this it has, might be their year. Kings might be their year. I, I hope so. But when you say their year, like get into the play-in tournament, is that what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> what does success mean to you, Brant? They might. They might be five hundred. Five hundred. 500 success. I think we would have a parade in the downtown of Sa- Sacramento if that happened. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> it really is. Well, don't let it fool you. We are still in a basement in Draper, Utah, in a tiny bedroom. Um, but, you know, it's amazing what some camera angles can do in the right lighting. I don't believe you. You guys look real professional. <laughs> like when I got on camera, I was like, dang, guys are stepping up their game. Yep. A garbage can behind me. <laughs> yeah, the light sits on a garbage can. We'll post a picture, a wide angle in the show notes. Anyways, I think we should just get, get right into it, you guys. It's a big week. I'm excited. We have an amazing guest on the show. I'm going to do a quick intro. Our guest today has been involved in building some iconic brands such as Skull Candy Headphones and Stance Socks. He's done deals with the likes of Snoop Dogg, Rihanna, James Harden, D-Wade, the NBA, the MLB, you name it. One of the best BD guys around, also involved in advising and investing in lots of um, D2C e-commerce brands. So we are super excited to have Clark Miyasaki on the show today. Welcome, Clark. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. I, I like your background too, Clark. You're you're there at the stance office. You're looking pretty. Yeah, pretty I'm cool. at the stance office. I overlook the basketball court. Oh, that's my baby. Okay, dang. I always say that's my fifth child. That's um, the. You t- I think that. you told me when we were there that stance. That's Mr. Cartoon, right? He did that mural on the. Yeah, way. yeah, that mural. It's crazy. He just he basically spent thirty six hours here with Kansas spray paint, and that's it. It's unbelievable wow. it's cool. when you look at it that and go look at the detail. It's awesome. Well, guys, we've been talking about this. We're pretty excited. Clark is um, an, a, a legend in the uh, biz dev world and it has tons of experience building brands. We're going to talk a little bit about how um, e-commerce brands, even especially new e-commerce brands, can start to think about building a brand. But before we kind of get into that, Clark, I just kind of wanted to get started, let the listeners hear a little bit about your story. So um, first question is just, how did you get started in your career? Like, take us back a little bit and, and tell us a little bit about your journey. Um, so I'm from Sugar City, Idaho, little farming community, thousand people. Um, I, I have a lot of love for Sugar City. And I went to college at BYU. And during between my junior and senior year at BYU, I was an intern at a software startup company called Freeport.com basically had the idea of Groupon before anybody had an email address. So we were a little ahead of our time um, and, you know, raised a few million bucks, um, ballooned from 10 employees to 130 employees. Uh, my good friend, well, I ended up meeting my good friend, Jeff Curl there, who was the founder. Um, and uh, we raised 130 employees, went down to 20 employees, uh, ran out of money uh, during the dot-com boom. Mm. Um, but it was a great lesson for me, and it taught me two things. Um, one, that I wanted to do startups someday. 
Um, and two, I needed a lot more experience to do that. And being from Sugar City and not knowing what that meant, I thought, I thought that meant go to a big company, get an MBA somewhere, and then I'd maybe have permission to come back and do a startup. So that's what I tried to do. Worked hard to get a job at Ford Motor Company as a financial analyst. Moved out to uh, Michigan and was in the process of doing that. They paid for MBA at uh, the University of Michigan, which was a top 10 MBA program back then. And probably still is today. I have no idea. But that was going to kind of be my path. And about six months into Ford, Jeff, the founder of Freeport, was like, hey, quit your job Ford, come do venture capital with me. And I didn't really know what venture capital was. I was like, no, I'm on this management track. I'm going to get my MBA. And he just kept calling me. And finally, you know, almost a year into Ford, he's like, Clark, the dudes leaving the University of Michigan with MBAs are trying to get the job that I'm <laughs> offering you right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm working venture capital. And I was like, is that true? He's like, yeah, really. And so uh, we left Ford. Um, I went to V Spring Capital, which was awesome. Like the learning curve of being in, at a VC firm and looking at hundreds of deals and analyzing them and meeting with all these great founders and these experienced partners just kind of like threw me into the world. Um, definitely fake it till you make it. Like uh, you guys are doing with the number one e-commerce podcast in the world. <laughs> um, applied there because uh, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was really fun and um, did a lot of deals there. Worked on a lot of deals at Spring. After a couple of years there, me and Jeff decided to leave to one of the companies that pitched vSpring. It's called LogoWorks. Um, it's a software startup that did graphic design, outsourced graphic design. Uh, we built that. I did BD there, did partnerships with people like Staples, uh, Network Solutions, um, Intuit, Hewlett Packard. And one of our partners, Hewlett Packard, ended up acquiring us. And so that's why I call the greatest year of my life is that mm -hmm. year post acquisition where you have to stay there to get your money, but you don't really care that much. My <laughs> handicap got down to a four. I was oh. golfing like four times a week. It was a beautiful time in my life. Um, but uh, when that was winding down, I got a call from Skullcandy who said, hey, come run business development up here. So I uh, got a call to say from the CEO and founder of Skullcandy, Rick Alden, was like, hey, I want you to come run business development. And um, I'm like, what does that mean? And he said, you know, Jeff told me that you're the best at deals. You're like the best BD guy out there. So at Skullcandy, that means putting deals with like super cool brands, um, musicians, artists, athletes. And I just looked at him and I was like, Rick, I am a Mormon from Sugar City, Idaho. <laughs> like, thanks, but no thanks. That's not going to happen. So did, I told him no. Did you tell? Um, did you ask him if any of these brands or artists were cooler than Staples? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the level I was on. And I was like, there's no way. Where would I start? And so I told him no. They called back in two weeks. They're like, Jeff told us that we have to hire you. You'll figure it out. Um, here's a little more equity. I told them no again. Then Jeff came in two weeks later. He's like, dude, just come do it. Give it a shot. You might fail, but it'll be fun. And we're just about to take off. So I think I was employee number 13-ish, something like that at Skullcandy. And um, that was probably uh, coming off the best year of my life. That was the hardest year of my life. I think I spent 160 nights in hotel rooms that year. Wow. Um, just going to different music festivals, um, Vegas clubs, bribing security guards to get backstage, um, pounding the pavement, trying to meet agents, like literally just trying to do anything to in insert myself into this crazy world. Um, and uh, ended up getting a couple. My first deal was with Metallica. Um, and we did a headphone with the Metallica artwork and it came with a free music download if you bought the headphones. So that was the very first deal I did was with Metallica. And then we did one with Paul Frank that ended up being a huge winner for us in, in Target, that's Little Monkey. Yep. Um, and then from there, they just started to kind of flow in. Snoop was the next big one. And this is during like, drop it like it's hot. He was as big as it gets. Mm -hmm. And I remember him putting headphones on Larry King, on Conan O'Brien. He did a concert for us. Like he, he took our brand from like 
this little snowboard headphone company in Park City to a worldwide known brand and our headphones, we could not keep them in stock in the best buys of the world and targets of the world where the number one selling headphone in both of those. Um, and a lot of it was due to Snoop and some of these other partnerships that we had and that snowballed from the NBA and supermodels. And then yeah. I could talk for hours about, <laughs> um, some really fun stories about just navigating that. <laughs> we want to hear some for of, sure. Uh, Clark, I want to, I want to, before you tell the good stuff, I would love for our listeners to hear who are probably, you know, in a room similar to the one we are sitting in, which is like, you know, the very quiet, humble beginnings of companies, what the first 160 days on the road were like, was there a lot of self doubt was like, could you just talk a little bit about what you were feeling during that time? Uh, yeah, I actually remember a time I called my wife. I was in, um, you guys remember the rain at, uh, Palms hotel. That was like the hot hotel and Lil Wayne was performing (laughs) and I was waiting. I got like some connect through some security guard. I couldn't remember what it was. They're like, Hey, you can go meet Wayne and his manager. And so I'm like, okay, cool. So I get in this club. It's like 11. And just picture me in like me with, with a wife and probably two kids at that time sitting at home and Wayne doesn't come on till one thirty or something like that. So two and a half hours by yourself at club rain in Vegas. I remember calling my wife and this is probably two or three months in the job and being like, I'm out. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, like what, what is this? And, um, and I, I just didn't think I could get it done and I was putting in all the effort. So, uh, you know, I, I have a whole speech that I sometimes do that's, that's called the art of luck. And, um, it's basically, you know, you got to work hard and treat every relationship. Like it's, it's, it's sacred. And I was doing all those things, especially the work hard, but I think it was like two or three months in when I called my wife and I said, this is my last trip. Like, this is, this is so ridiculous. Mm. I've been in this club for two and a half hours, um, hoping for the chance to get to the security guard to meet Wayne and his manager. Um, fast forward the story. I did not meet Wayne and his manager that night. Uh. So I spent three to four hours in club rain at the Palms hotel and went to bed at like two thirty three. just like, yeah, I knew I made a mistake. I knew I shouldn't have taken this job. And so times that experience by about 140 of others of those nights on the road until I started to get a couple of deals to fall. And that coincided with Skull Candy getting bigger and um, starting to become a little more well-known because when I started, it probably would have been ideal for me to start at Skull Candy maybe six months later. So I didn't have to talk to everybody and we're a real company and things like that. But dude, the self-doubt and was going to quit the next day or yeah, I need to start looking for a new job and I'll just last this one. I mean, that's six months. That's all that. Well, probably first four months until I finally got a couple of deals to close. That's all that was, Doug, of just what did I do? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I think I think probably your listeners and you guys, uh, we can all relate to that uh, self-doubt and what did I do? And it's just those small wins that keep you coming back. Yeah. And, um, luckily I'd, I'd, I'd have a win just at the right time. Like, okay, maybe I can't do this. And then about a year into Skull Candy, like the floodgates opened and finally calls are starting to come to me or I could get to anybody I wanted to. And we had some successful deals and things like that. But, um, yeah, those first six months were super painful. And did you, when you were, you know, in those, the quiet moments of the 140 days of no's or the, you know, first three or four months, were you saying to yourself, man, okay, I need to change up my strategy. I need to change up the way I close. I need to change up how I'm talking to people or like the people that I need to know to get intros. What were the things that you were trying to switch up? Um, more finding. If I could get in front of somebody, I've, I was always pretty good at that. I think that skill set carried over from venture capital to logo works. Like you put me with somebody and I think that's, that's probably the one thing that I'm decent at in life is if you put me with somebody, I'm pretty good at building a quick relationship of trust. And, um, uh, and I'm super honest to people about, um, what's available and what the deal could look like. And so that was, 
that was probably the easy part of getting some, you know, once I got to somebody, but just finding people like getting the right person. And for your listeners that are selling software or selling a product, I mean, it's just, how do you get in front of people? And that was the problem I was trying to solve is how to get in front of the right people. I was paying a guy named Fez, who I'm pretty sure lived out of his car, um, $500 a month to make intros for me. And so I'd go down to Hollywood and I'd pick him up in my car, in my rental. And we'd like go around and he'd be like, Hey, I think Slash is here tonight. We'd go talk to him. And then we'd go to like his car. He'd have a trunk and he had like all these consumer products in there. He'd like grab out the headphones that we'd take. And then I'd talk with Slash for 20 minutes and give him some headphones and like move around to the next one. And he took me to Fergie's birthday party and just the weirdest, weirdest, weirdest stuff. Um, but it, you know, I don't know how many no's I got before we got our first yes. Um, but that was really the problem. Doug was, was fine. Once mm. I got the right person, no problem. But, uh, there's a lot of like, yeah, I don't know that guy. And, and, and I didn't even know who I was going after. And I think that's probably a whole nother discussion is how to figure out what customer you're going after and what's the right way to figure out who the right customer is. So I think that was learning curve was more in the finding and not the closing back then. So whenever we, you know, have a tough day, we could be hanging out with Fez in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a little perspective. <laughs> Opening up a trunk, hanging out with Fez. Yeah, Open up a trunk, hanging out with Fez. He always wore a fedora. I'll never forget. <laughs> I actually tried to call it because I, st I still have Fez in my phone. And like seven years ago, I tried to call him. And, um, but his Nothing. phone was no longer working. I wish we knew where Fez was. So today. if anyone out there knows Fez in Hollywood, <laughs> um, then hit me up. I want to, I want to take that dude out to a great meal. So one of the things I think that's interesting about Skull Candy, you know, if you look at Skull Candy as a brand, even early on, they had some really cool things going for it. The, the logo was awesome. The name of the company was awesome. Um, started with this niche of kind of like snow and skateboard, culture but really you know like you said when school candy was in the heyday it was like the coolest brand and it still has lasting impact on culture today How, maybe you can tell this through the story of a deal um or something but like how do you convince someone when you're still this tiny little company to partner with you and you know you don't have that many resources yet like what's that process like and maybe some you know, just maybe to put it in perspective for people to say like, well, I can't do a deal with Snoop because X, Y, Z, like tell us a little bit about how that maybe, um, one of those stories. Yeah, we had, um, no money. Um, I, I won't disclose the amounts of our deals, but if, if I started to tell you what we paid, um, and some of the biggest names in, uh, fashion, sports, supermodels, uh, music, like you guys would, would die. And, um, I always came out, I always say like, use your style and that's how you get to people. So I've worked with people whose style is super aggressive. Um, I always use, um, my homie Rob Schlachter at Staples. He, um, he, I was trying to get a deal at LogoWorks with Staples and I called him, I got a super warm intro and he was the biggest jerk to me. Like our first call is like, I think you said the words, why the F would we do that with you? <laughs> and I'm like, geez, Rob, geez, Rob. And we ended up, I ended up getting the deal of Staples and then Rob became great. I took Rob to you too. He took me golfing in Vegas. Like we became friends. I asked him, I'm like, Rob, why were you such an a-hole back in the day when we first talked? He's like, dude, I'm from Massachusetts. That's what we do. And so that was his style. And my style at Skull Candy was kind of like this underdog mentality. Hey, we're this uh, snowboard company out of surf skate snow company out of Park City that's doing something amazing in the headphone space. And you're unique um, in what you do. Come take this ride with us. And uh, um, I can't pay you a lot, but I promise it's going to be a blast. And look at this sea of black and gray headphones. Like we're going to make you um, uh, uh, a tastemaker and everyone loved music back then. I remember like we did Katie and Harden, they had a music studio. They were trying to bring up this rapper out of OKC 
And so everyone loved music back then. And we really were like before Beats by Dre came along, we were the coolest thing mm -hmm. in, in the headphone space by far. Yeah. And um, so I think we had a little brand cachet. We didn't when I started, but by the time I really started doing a lot of deals, we did. Um, and so I think, I think my advice would be like, take your style and run with it and find where you're differentiated. For us, it was a differentiated product. For others, it might be something unique that you can use for that for marketing. It might be a charity angle or whatever it might be. But um, I, back then, it was all also a little easier to do deals. I don't want to give people like, oh, man, I can go sign Snoop tomorrow. It's celebrity and influencers. It's it, They know how valuable they are now versus what they were today. So we were able to get some really good deals. But I think it's like with everything. Like I, I am good at creating relationships. And so I had great relationships with the agents or the talent or whoever it might be. And, um, I was always super authentic. I think that's the words that you could bring up time and time again, like authenticity just oozes out of people. Um, and it oozes out of brands. And I think brands authenticity comes from the people that work there and how the design comes about the packaging, like everything oozes brand. And so, um, I think just play to your strengths and, um, don't take no, and just, just know you're going to get a bunch of no's before you get yeses and iterate and test. You know, I've done hundreds of deals in my life and there've been, you know, the majority have succeeded. There's been a bunch that have failed and that's okay. And change it up and go for the next one. So, um, I don't know, find your niche and, and play to that strength would probably be the summarization of that hmm. answer. I think Skull Candy is a brand everybody's heard about Clark. Um, another brand, it's interesting because I maybe was early. I started wearing stance socks. I remember this date because it was a year before I changed jobs. I, I put my first pair of stance socks on my feet in 2011. I don't think I've put a different sock on my foot since, which sounds <laughs> stupid, but it's true. I, like if I always, one interesting conversation that you can have with people is like, what are the brands you're most loyal to? And, you know, for me, like I started thinking about American Express or Delta Airlines or things like this. But to be honest, I think based on footwear alone, I think even more so than Nike or Adidas, I think Stance is my, I'm most loyal to Stance more than any other brand because I wear it every single day, like for the past decade, which is kind of crazy. Um, and I didn't know you back then. Um, but nope. after Skull Candy... Um, there was a little bit of a detour, but you ended up at Stance, which is a, kind of an iconic direct-to-consumer brand that's done really cool stuff. How did you get involved with Stance? So that same guy that we talked about before, Jeff Curl, he had started Stance. He tried to get me um, to start on the founding team, but I had just been through this crazy skull candy experience that ended up in an IPO. And uh, so I told him no, but that I would and sit on the advisory board as an early investor. And I helped them get a few deals. I came down and spent a summer in San Clemente. Um, and we did, I did a few deals for them and kind of helped them out until he came in the middle of winter. Uh, I came in like the end of November and I hate winter. And he promised me this wonderful California lifestyle mm -hmm. where we'd all come make um, at millions of dollars uh, selling socks somehow. So I left uh an amazing position as a partner to venture capital fund, kickstart seat fund, shout out Gavin, um, uh, to come sell socks, which even saying that sentence is, it does sound really yeah. stupid. <laughs> 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 so that's how, that's how it started. Just got guy or, but before Jeff, he founded it and it, it took him about three years to get me, but three years of, of bugging me. Um, finally, finally pulled the trigger and made it down here. So when you guys um, are looking at, I mean, I don't, socks are not a commodity, but they basically are a commodity at that point. Um, how do you take something like that that's so, like, I'm going to go to Target and I'm going to buy a six pack of Hanes. That's basically the market at that point. Or I'm going to buy gold toe socks from Nordstrom or yeah. whatever. How do you take that market that was there and look at it and say, we think we can build a lifestyle brand that people think is really cool. How did you guys think? Uh, clearly, Jeff had a vision for how he wanted to go build this and how you could help do that. And I think that's, I, I, 
you know, a very big success that you, you pulled that off. But how yep. did you guys think about building a brand at Stance? Yeah, so um, I think in a nutshell, we took what we did at Skullcandy and Skullcandy was the first consumer products brand that we'd ever built. And we're like, man, if we took all of these lessons from Skullcandy and everything we learned and we applied it to a new consumer products category, um, we'd be deadly. We have all the relationships now. Um, we know all of the surf skates, no retailers so that we can make it cool and high fashion retailers, sneaker boutiques, places like that. So we can make whatever product that we decide to do cool. Um, and Jeff through a lot of trips of walking down the aisles of Target and Walmart landed on socks. And we said, okay, let's take what we've learned from Skull Candy and how to apply design brand. Um, and punks and poets is what we would call them, which is our brand ambassadors and PR. And how do we do that and apply it to socks? And so, um, that journey was, was a lot quicker and easier than skull candy. I mean, if you look at our growth charts, um, for stance, we were just flying, um, growing 200% and 150%, 150%, 125%, 100% for probably the first seven, eight years. Um, and I think it's because we had that blueprint of what to do and what not to do. We had a great team, um, and we just were able to apply lessons that we learned into a new product category. So one of the, one of the things that I think is super cool about Stance is, and a lot of people might not know this, um, Stance was the very first logo ever on, in, on the, on an NBA court. Um, and you were the person that you know, pretty much single-handedly pulled that off. Tell us a little bit about that. I, I've heard this story before, but um, I think our listeners would love to hear some behind the scenes of the NBA deal. Yeah. So um, when Jeff, when I, when I decided to come to Stamps, Jeff asked me, and this is when Stamps was still small. He said, what would be the ultimate deal? Like what would be the craziest deal that you could think of? Like your moonshot, what would that be? And I was like, if we could get NBA players wearing Stamps socks. That means we have a product good enough for the best athletes on the world. And our brand is big enough that the NBA would partner with us. So that was kind of in the back of my mind. And I think you fast forward, geez, at least probably five years, uh, maybe more than that. And we had uh, an NBA deal that was super small. They let us do retro logos called their hardwood classics and old school player socks. So we had like a Stockton to Malone sock, a Dr. J sock, a Larry Bird sock, and then some hardwood classics. And we didn't know how it would go. It was kind of our first foray. And as you talk about brand and what adds to your brand and takes away from your brand, there was worry around stance that the NBA deal might take away from our brand because we are so loyal to this surf skate style fashion mm -hmm. um, core. And I was like, it, it actually, I can't remember what skater it was, but one of our skaters they're kind of asking feedback, like, hey, how would you guys feel um, about, I wish I could remember who it was, about um, doing the NBA? And he, like, freaked out. He's like, oh, my gosh, I'm the biggest OKC Thunder fan. Mm -hmm. Like, Katie is is my hero. And, um, and so that kind of helped us. And so we went into NBA product, didn't know how it would go, and it just went bananas. Like, I think we 11X'd our minimum guarantee with the NBA that first year. Um, couldn't print enough of them that couldn't make enough player socks. And so they expanded our rights. So I was still in myself a little bit in New mm. York one day, <laughs> uh, gathered up the courage. like, Hey, I have something to bring up with you guys. Obviously we've proved that, you know, we can sell NBA socks. Um, uh, how do you feel about us becoming the on-court sock provider for the NBA? And, um, I was laughed out of the room, um, the worst feedback ever. They told me that my idea was cute. Like that, I'll never forget. <laughs> so that didn't go very well. Over the next year, I'd bring it up sometimes. Same thing. Yeah, no chance, Clark. Um, uh, but keep doing what you're doing on our casual socks. So we had to, I knew I had to change the narrative. I had a meeting at the All-Star Game in New Orleans. Um, whatever the, the really good breakfast spot is there, that's where we're going. Um, to meet with the NBA and some of their, their, uh, decision makers. And so I told my CFO before I headed to New Orleans that I needed a $1 million check made out to the NBA for September 1st, 2017. And this was in the all-star game of 2016. And, uh, um, he's like, like avoided check. I'm like, no, it's gotta be a real check. Like, I can't give you a real check. I called Jeff. I'm like, Jeff, 
tell Brandon it's okay to give me a million dollar check. <laughs> so he printed out a real million dollar check, um, payable to the National Basketball Association. And we were having our little breakfast. I brought up our idea. I could tell Lisa was going to tell me no again. I was like, Lisa, before you tell me no. And I pulled out my little envelope and I slid it across the breakfast table. And she's like, what's this? Did she you feel like up. you were in a movie right then when you slid the envelope <laughs> yeah, across? Yeah, it, it actually kind of feels movie. It probably wasn't at the time. Probably at the time I'm like, you're an idiot. Like this is ever going to work. But I knew I needed to do something. Um, but uh, but now it feels like it was movie. I can picture it. We actually went to breakfast at the same spot three years later, all of us um, together, and took a picture to, re to remember the moment. Um, but uh, she opens up the check. She's like, this isn't a real check. Like it absolutely is a real check and you're going to cash that on September 1st of 2017 before we're the official Encore stock provider. And she looked like, you're crazy. She's like, would you guys really like do something like this? That absolutely we're, we are dead serious. And it changed the narrative from us being a Southern California stock company to man, there might be a real revenue opportunity here for the NBA. Because at that time, like Roger said, and there's a quote out there that, that says, that means that stamps, not Nike, not Adidas, not, uh, I think they said Reebok, Champion. or any of the other multi-billion dollar brands that have been uh, in existence before today, is the first logo in NBA history to have its emblem stamped on a, place, on a piece of NBA equipment. And, uh, you know, fast forward, we got that, we got the deal done. Um, that was one of my favorite moments of all time, um, sitting at Staples and seeing all of the best players in the world walk out and seeing that beautiful hmm. little stamps dot on everybody's socks across the whole court. Um, and uh, just, just, I mean, the amount of negotiation and meetings and lawyers and late nights and um, uh, one of our uh, mutual friends, Noel, has a picture of me literally asleep on my office couch in the middle of the day during that deal uh, because I was just thrashed. They'd give their red lines. Uh, we'd get them. I'd work with our lawyers till like 10 at night, get their red line back. And, but so a lot of pain to get that deal done, but it was probably the coolest thing I'll ever work on. I don't know. Maybe, maybe something different will come up, but it was, it was pretty rad. So that's the, that's the NBA million dollar yeah. check story. And Lisa has the million dollar check hanging up in her office at the NBA which is cool. I need to steal it from her someday because I'd rather have that million dollar check, but um, she's, she, still, she still has it. Maybe you can pay her a million dollars for it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe she'd, she'd, probably, she'd probably take a thousand. I'll, I'll start low. Yeah. I'll start low. Just kidding. <laughs> That's an, that is awesome. <clears throat> Such a cool story. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit here. You yep. work with a lot of direct consumer brands. I know you are you know on the board of a few and advisor and investor and several um, it's been a challenging, you know, couple years, but especially a challenging 2022. Um, what are just some of the biggest challenges you're seeing brands are facing right now? And, and maybe we can dig into a little bit of how to maybe overcome some of that stuff. Well, I think the, the biggest challenge, when did iOS, which was that March of 2020, March, mm -hmm. 2021, I can't 21. Yeah. June of 21, 21, June of 21. Yeah. So um, I think that lingering effect of iOS changing and Facebook ads um, becoming less and less effective, that like changed the world for DTC. I mean, the amount of uh, iteration and changes, and we have still have not got back um, not only, you know, the brands I work directly with, but the brands I sit bored of. Um, you look at CPMs, you look at CACs. Um, and nobody has recovered from that change. And I think, um, advertising to me, I always say advertising is just a game of arbitrage. Like what can you find where you can stick $1 in and get at least $2 out. And for a decade, at least you could do that with Google and Facebook, like stick a dollar in the vending machine, get three or $4 out. And it was almost easy and like everything that, that is too easy. And it, it started getting hard in like 2018, 19, 20, 21. But before then, it was so easy to make um, money online as a, it's a direct-to-consumer company. Um, but it started getting harder. And then that iOS changed um, through everybody to where, you know, you had to pull back spend and switch agencies. And we were 
you know, I, I was just spending so much of my time digging into numbers, just trying to figure out how to deal with, uh, with, with making advertising profitable. And so I think everybody is looking at that and really the problem for any company, I don't care how big you are, how small you are, if you're direct to consumer, if you're that, the problem for everybody is how to acquire a customer profitably. Mm-hmm. And if you can solve that problem, then you have a business. It doesn't matter what you're selling. It actually doesn't even matter how good your brand is. I know, I know this theme is brand, but I would put that way above um, in order of importance than the brand. If you can profitably acquire customers and your brand sucks, no problem. Go, go acquire a ton of customers. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, that is the problem that we're all facing is how to profitably acquire customers. I'm curious sort of what you're advising on the ground, like as you're in these board meetings, what does that look like when, you know, CPMs have shot up and you're trying to figure out what to do for the next couple months? Yeah, I think you can actually um, rewind three years ago, four years ago. And uh, um, this idea of arbitrage, like how do you arbitrage the system? And maybe it was four or five years ago. I don't know. Everything pre-COVID is like, it's just the same timeline. So however long it was. But um, once it was harder to get an effective CAC online, podcasts were next. And so we started to find podcasts. And that was the next piece of arbitrage. And then you had a little, had a little time period where I was like, oh, man, maybe traditional media um, is next. And we did some direct mail pieces and radio. And that was a little bit of arbitrage. And so, Brad, I think the the right answer is you got to go try a bunch of stuff. So I think there's amazing opportunities and influencers that that's happened over the last five years. Now that feels like that arbitrage is kind of gone. So I think you're just, the key is to stay ahead because the arbitrage opportunities, what happens is companies find them, they jump on them. And then pretty soon the podcast CPM went up 10x because Everyone heard like, oh, podcasts work. Cool. Mm-hmm. We're going to go put $5 million in podcasts. Oh, direct mail is working? Cool. Let's go do that. And so you have to try. I, I, and I, I see a lot of pitches on um, different things that people are trying. Um, I think there's some uh, interesting technologies out there. Um, we, can, we can talk about some of them. But I think that's the key is what are you trying as a consumer products company that will provide that arbitrage that DTC Facebook advertising once provided and then podcast once provided, what's that next technology that's going to provide that? Mm -hmm. And you just have to be early because if you're not early, it's going to be too late and it's going to be too expensive. So how do you find um, what that is early and, 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 you know, plow enough money into it early to make a difference? One that actually makes me think of um, something that we talk to a lot of brands about, which is using TikTok. Um, and I think I would say the general theme that we hear from brands is like, oh, we don't really know what to do on TikTok, or we're trying some stuff. It's kind of the wild, wild west. There seems to be some value there, um, or you know, there's interest there from brands that are now kind of coming around to this. Are you seeing anything interesting on TikTok or any thoughts there, like on on some yeah. stuff? I, I TikTok's a great one. It, it's the perfect example. I, you guys, I think you talk to consumer brands that have been around for five years. All of us have this moment where it's like, oh, Snapchat's the answer. It's so easy. And the early returns on Snapchat were unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Like, because nobody was advertising, you got this huge share of mind. And now there's just so many people on TikTok. I, I also think that platform allows you to be a little more creative. Um, you can work with creators. Um, you can advertise on your own. And so I think TikTok's a great one. That's a, that's a perfect example of it's early in the process. Um, so if you can figure out your niche in TikTok and just plow money in that, the whole game is customer acquisition. And right now there's a lot of brands that are that feel that way. Like, oh, I don't know TikTok. Isn't that a bunch? Isn't that teenagers? Can you really make money on that? Yes, you can make money on that, <laughs> but you got to go figure out how. And now brands are going to start coming in. We're in the early adopter, and I don't know if it's six months from now or six years from now, but at some point, it, it's going to the market will become efficient, 
and um, you won't be able to take advantage of what you can now on a platform like TikTok. I'm curious too, because um, one of the things that seems to be a challenge, especially for a little bit more established brands, is TikTok, you know, it's very UGC centric. It's very casual. A lot of brands are more serious and they want to present their brand in a certain way. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Like kind of breaking through, you know, hey, um, this is a new technology. There's arbitrage here, but we might have to posture our brand in a different way in order to engage with the audience that's on that platform. Man, I think that is the biggest challenge for established brands. And it's one that I've fought many times. Um, and I, I just think brands take themselves too serious a lot of the time. And I think they think, you know, I've had, um, Facebook ad that was probably off brand, you know, one of, one of somebody in on the brand side saw it and like freaked out, like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't believe this would get out here. And then you pull up the statue, like, Hey dude, this has been seen by 7,000 people that have never heard of our brand yep. total. And they probably scrolled through it. It's our brand is going to be just fine. Don't worry. I remember. And I just think, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Clark. Oh, I was just going to say brands just, they just take themselves too seriously. And that type of thinking is what causes you to be on the other side of the adoption curve. Mm. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, what if, what, what if our brand loyalists see that? And it, like guys, your brand, it, brand is like a bank account. There's debits and credits. Yep. And, uh, um, as long as you're playing both sides and if you're in the surf skate snow brand, you have to take care of the surf, surf skate snow culture. And that's great. Go do all that. I'm not saying don't do that and just focus on humor and um, creating a bunch of views on TikTok. But as long as you're taking care of that piece, you should, you allow yourself um, the ability to go and try things and try TikTok and try humor and uh, do different ads and giveaways or whatever it might be, partner with creators. And I, I just think brands are hesitant to do that. And the reason why is, I think it's it's uh, the easiest cop out to just be like I I just I don't know if our brand and I've been in so many meetings when people bring up you play the brand card it's the hardest one to argue against because yep. it's going to be like our brand doesn't matter that much come on but I actually think it's it's less courageous to pull the brand card because it's so easy mm. and uh, um and the really the people that have guts and that that um make it and I think have a better chance to win are those that say, you know, our brand can handle that. Let's go for it. Like we, we can, we can handle that. I think more companies miss out by trying to protect their brand than not just by going and trying stuff and your brand's going to be just fine for the most part. I was sitting in a meeting with, uh, this is my own team meeting. So this is my own doing <laughs> sitting in a meeting with a bunch of people on the creative side of our business. And I remember one of the designers saying something to the effect of, yeah, that's super interesting. It just doesn't fit with our brand. I was leading marketing at the time, leading the brand. And I looked at her and I just said, you know, we ought to get with those people that control the brand. <laughs> because maybe we could convince them that this could fit in our brand. And she just looked yep. at me like I spoke Chinese almost, like this foreign language. She's like, it's almost like there's these artificial boundaries that people create in their minds of what a brand, quote unquote, has to be. And what I love about, we were looking at a brand on, with, with another business owner yesterday, we're looking at a brand that's killing it on TikTok. And their best video had like 35 million views. And the, the video that had 35 million views was so stupid had nothing to do with their brand. But you know what else? 35 million impressions on that logo. Do you know how hard it is to get 35 million impressions for free? It's like, I don't yeah. know any, anything else that's like that. And so I do think there's a really interesting arbitrage opportunity there. I think you're exactly right, Clark. And it's going to take guts to go do it. Um, and you can always tell the people that are trying to play it safe versus those that are actually just like, let's just let's just try this. Yeah. Maybe another kind of interesting question to dive into is if you were starting a brand and you were the CEO today, like kind of how would you think first, 
you know, six to 12 months in terms of like where you're placing your bets? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, if I have CEO of a brand and this might not be too relevant for other people, but, um, I think you can create equity partners with influencers, whether those be athletes or movie stars or whatever it might be. Um, that's, that's step one, because that's just, that's just free and you get them, uh, part of your brand. There's a company that my friend started called Move Insoles and they're trying to create the next insole for the masses. And, um, they got great athletes like CP invested, you know, gave him some equity and that relationship alone, he's done interviews for them. So I, I, that's interviews and PR and their brands kind of blown up just, just from those relationships beyond me, it's probably the best. Um, I've seen it doing that of early equity partners that, um, use that for advertising and they, they like truly love the brand. So that'd be number one. And then the second thing I would do is find that customer acquisition arbitrage, try everything, uh, test everything. And, you know, if I had 2 million bucks in the bank, I would say 500,000 of this is to, is going to be used to spray a bunch of bets out there and see which one works and then pile money into the one that works. Um, because you know, you'd think that my answer would be like, oh, I'd build a beautiful brand. No, I'd build a product that has great gross margins and then figure out how to easily get customers. Like that's, that's what I do. And the only way to do that is to spray a bunch of bets out there and, um, see what works. So mm -hmm. that, that would be order of business. Number one is to figure out that customer acquisition dilemma and how to fix that. And that might be DTC. It might be retail. It might be influencers. Um, you never know what, what that's going to be. Um, but I think that's the most important thing that brands can figure out today. Can I ask a venture question, Clark? Yeah. So um, venture capital has changed a lot in the last six months. Should direct-to-consumer companies, when you say, I got $2 million bucks in the bank, I'm going to go spend $500,000 on kind of a spray-and-play strategy or spray-and-pray, find the one that works, and then go like go deep into it and, and try to go acquire customers. When should DTC consumer brands think about taking outside capital versus bootstrapping? How would you think about that today? Um, as soon as you know that I can put a dollar in the machine and get $4 out. Like when you can get a three to four X return on your money at scale. So you did that $500,000 thing and you do not have enough money to keep up with your customer growth because it's working so well. That's just like music to a VC's ear. Yep. So as soon as you get to that point, whether you have a hundred thousand dollars and you try that with fifty thousand dollars of it, um, but that that's the point to do it. It's not. It, it, it just depends, right? Like venture capital's this um, enigma that it's impossible to figure out because whoever has relationships with venture capital, like I could go out and raise two million dollars tomorrow um, uh, because I have relationships and people will be like, yeah, Clark, I'm in. Whatever you're doing. But, uh, for, for most companies, they have to show traction. Like, I don't, I can't tell you how many times as a venture capitalist we said that, like, we love your idea. This is awesome. If you can just show some traction and then come back and see us, uh, but, and I'll bet everybody out there that's listening to this that hasn't started this, try to raise money. They're like, oh, that stupid word traction. <laughs> um, but it's true. And so it's better just to accept that and be like, okay, I know I need to go show traction. What is that? And that's what it is. Traction is I've figured out how to acquire customers cost effectively. And here is the proof, Mr. Venture Capital. Here is the proof of how I can do that. And here is how it, here is why we think it can grow with your $2 million. And I think that's the point where you're, you're ready to raise at that point. Just as a follow-up to that, just kind of your personal style outside of traction, are you looking for specific types of products? Are you betting on founders? Kind of like, what's your, what's your investment thesis uh, there? Um, I don't know. If you looked at, I don't know, I think I have 40-something angel investments probably. And if you looked at them, it's probably all across the board. Um, but most of them are relationships like, hey, I've invested with this founder before. This guy I trust is in the deal, and he said to do it. Um, he had an exit before it's my, you know, venture fund kickstart is saying like, Hey, I think you'd be great for this deal. Can you, um, co-invest with us? 
So mine is more relationship based. There's some, I have invested in a few, um, that are just cold deals that I, I just really like the idea. Um, but, but those have a far worse success rate <laughs> than the ones if I were to look back on my, all my investments, the ones that have done the best are just the ones where I had relationships with the founders and, um, I, I, you know, trusted them. Did you know the founders of Robin hood? Oh, you're hilarious. You're hilarious. <laughs> Clark Clark had some early access to Robinhood and didn't take it. It's his biggest regret. I, I'm not 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 early access. Seed round. Seed access. round at Robinhood. That'd have been pretty good. It was one. a twelve million dollar post, I think. Maybe a sixteen million dollar post. Yeah, I have three three big misses. That's definitely one of them. Maybe we'll end with this. It's kind of a it's kind of a classic interview question, Clark. But um, with your experience. I think it would be interesting to get your take on it. You know, you talk about um, the young version of Clark um, going through school, Sugar City, Idaho. If you could go back to like your 20-year-old self as a starting entrepreneur slash career person, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, say yes. I've said, and I've done that pretty well over the years. Um, my wife has promised me, I, I committed to her about six months ago that I would stop saying yes. But it has been awesome. Like someone calls me to go to Band and Dunes, I say yes, then I'll figure it out. And that's a dumb example, but like I, I've, I've for sure taken like Skull Candy. That was one of the dumbest things I ever did. Like how would, why in the world would I do that? And I guess I said no a couple times, so I didn't take my advice then. But I think that I think that's what everybody should do. Like say yes, take advantage of every opportunity. Um, your career or your startup, your product, your brand. It's going to get lucky at some point, but, um, in order for it to get lucky, you have to take advantage of every opportunity that comes along. You have to treat people great, uh, be super trustworthy, be authentic to who you are. And if you do those things, like it, it just exudes through to other people and, um, say yes to things like go have fun, take advantage of every opportunity out there. I've had, I ain't got only thing I'd tell my 20 year old self was like, dude, enjoy it. You gotta, mm -hmm. you gotta great 25 years coming up. You're going to screw up all the time. Um, you're going to leave jobs that you shouldn't have left, make investments that you should have, should have, or shouldn't have not take investments. And yeah, but just enjoy it. And I think, uh, you know, I, I always say like, try not to take life too seriously and, um, it'll, it'll generally work out in the end and it's going to be bumpy, but, um, it'll work out. So I'd probably just try to tell myself that advice enjoy the ride, say yes. And it'll, it'll eventually work out, even though sometimes you feel like it won't. Yep. Well, I love that. Clark, thank you for the masterclass on brand building and sharing some behind the scenes of some of your experience. I think that's a wrap for episode 11 guys. We'll catch you next time. Thanks Clark. Okay. Good to see you boys. See Later. Ya.